We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Hello and welcome to the Situation Report today. Glad to have you joining me. This is the show where we do our very best to give you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. My name is Jeremy Stoliker. Glad to be with you today and looking forward to talking about uh, really a, a subject <laughs> that is near and dear to my heart, perhaps yours as well, something that I care deeply about. And Something, as we will discuss, that makes me feel um, somewhat bad. Um, I don't know the right word to express how I feel about this, other than to say it makes me feel bad. Uh, it gives me, causes me great concern for the future of our nation, and certainly for my children who are growing up in the environment that we'll discuss here in just a moment. Now, I say all of that to say this is not intended to be a negative conversation, but one that definitely provides the information we need to navigate what's happening around us. There are things happening around us all of the time that need to be addressed, that we need to talk about, that we need to understand, and that we need to keep our uh, finger on, if you will, so that we know what is happening. We live largely, if you're listening to this show, in the United States of America. If you're not listening in the United States, thank you for also listening. We appreciate it, wherever you're listening from. But the majority of folks who listen to this show are listening here in the United States. And one of the areas that we have always held on to as Americans is that we were founded as a Christian nation. We, we've talked about that on this show before. And again, there are a lot of folks who would push back on even that statement. We were not founded as a Christian nation. Our founders uh, may have believed in God, but they were theists or deists. They weren't necessarily Christians. Uh, they didn't know perhaps who God was or what it meant. They believed that there was a superpower or some kind of a power outside of themselves, but they don't necessarily or would not have necessarily described themselves as Christians. Uh, historically, factually, we know that is not the case. Now, uh, there certainly were members of those that we would call our founding fathers who were not Christians in the sense that I would frame a Christian. What is a Christian? Someone who believes that they are a sinner, that because of that sin, there is separation between themselves and God, but that God loved us so much, he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to live then to die in our place, paying the price for our sin so that we could be forgiven. A Christian is one who believes that, believes that Jesus, who is God, when he died, three days later, rose again bodily, physically rose again, and that he, in that process, defeated sin and defeated death and makes possible a relationship with God. A Christian is someone who, believing all of that, puts their faith, their hope, their confidence in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. That is definition, the definition of a Christian. Now, <laughs> particularly now, uh, Christianity, 
the idea of what it is to be a Christian has been so broadened in our culture uh, that just about everything other than a pagan belief falls into the category of Christianity. Even uh, some areas that we once called cults are now identifying themselves as Christians, and uh, a lot of folks who don't know what a Christian is have gone along with that. But when I think about Christianity, I think about those who would hold a biblical worldview, a New Testament understanding of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why we would put our faith and our confidence in him. That being said, <laughs> I know that there are some of our founders who didn't hold to that the way that I do. What I do understand is that our founders believed in the largely, not all, but the majority believed in uh, the value of Scripture, an understanding of the Creator, uh, describing even in the Declaration of Independence, uh, stating the reason we would separate from Great Britain, uh, stating that we have these inalienable rights given to us by God. Uh, who we are is not something that a government grants or allows. It's something given to us by God. Uh, those are the foundations for our nation. Religious practice and religious liberty has so long been something we have valued here in the United States. Uh, the fact that most Americans at one time have identified as Christians, uh, that it was not uncommon for stores and other businesses to be closed on Sundays so that those in the population could worship. Uh, this is something that for so many generations was a part of American life. I don't need to convince you, I'm sure, that much of that has changed. I have two articles in front of me that I want to share with you in part today. One talks about this shift, um, what the article talks about, what the study talks about, from those who were once religiously affiliated who are now religiously unaffiliated. The second one is a recent article, a study done, about the impact of, of being, or claiming to be, um, in quotes, irreligious, that is, without religion. Something that we talk about a lot, but I don't think we practically understand it well, is that our belief system, whatever that is, has real-world consequences in our lives. It's always funny to me when someone will make the statement that what they believe about God and what they believe in the arena of faith, it's very personal to them and should not have an impact on how they treat others or uh, how they act or how they live or how in politics they govern, uh, that it's very personal and private. I would argue that what you believe about God and his relationship to you impacts everything else that you do. <laughs> Uh, in fact, Jesus said that when people look at those who are supposed to be Christians, by their fruits they'll be known. How they act, what they do, what they say, what they produce will reflect who they really are. And the Bible also explains that from the heart, the mouth speaks. When we see the way someone acts, not in every case, but so often we have an inside view of who they really are and what they really believe. If I really believe in the sanctity of life, as I say I do as a Christian, that will be the sanctity of all life, not just the lives of the unborn, 
but I'll treat people well because I believe that people, humans, were created in the image of God. They are the image bearers of God, and because of that, need to be treated well. That should be a reflection of what I believe. If I say I believe that God is and that God has a plan for my life and that God created me and that God created everyone, and yet I am unkind, I am hurtful, I don't value life, then it is fair to ask if I really believe what I say I believe. What we believe will have a very clear connection to how we act, what we do, what we don't do, the decisions that we make, how we govern, how we interact with the people in our lives. You cannot separate the two. When you say you believe something, hopefully that's true. But what you say doesn't always reflect what you believe. What you do most often does, however, reflect what you believe. So, we get to this first study. This is a year old. It is on the Pew Research Center website. The article is titled this, About 3 in 10 U.S. adults are now religiously unaffiliated. 3 in 10 U.S. adults are now religiously unaffiliated. This is a study that was done um, in 2022, reflecting on 2021. Self-identified Christians make up 63% of U.S. population in 2021, down from 75% a decade ago. So in 10 years, from 63% to 75%, flip that, (laughs) from 75% down to 63% in 10 years, this decline. And again, I don't think I'd have to convince anyone that there's been a decline. Uh, Let me read some of what this article says. Have you ever picked up a towel set because it felt really soft in the store, but then when you got to use it, it's not very absorbent? It's basically a towel that's leaving you out to dry. That's why MyPillow has developed the MyPillow towels. Towels that work. I know, it's mind-blowing. Towels that actually dry you. Their six-piece towel set includes two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths. They come in a variety of colors, and right now you can receive a six-piece set for only $39.98 with promo code SITREP. Go to MyPillow.com right now and click on the radio listener special. MyPillow products all come with a 10-year warranty and their 60-day money-back guarantee. To receive this amazing offer on the six-piece set of MyPillow towels, just go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener special, and enter promo code SITREP or call 800-870-0283. That's MyPillow.com, promo code SITREP. The secularizing shifts evident in American society so far in the 21st century show no signs of slowing. The latest Pew Research Center survey of the religious composition of the United States finds the religiously unaffiliated share of the public is 6 percentage points higher than it was five years ago and 10 points higher than a decade ago. Christians continue to make up a majority of the U.S. populace, but their share of the adult population is 12 points lower in 2021 than it was in 2011. In addition, the share of U.S. adults who say they pray on a daily basis has been trending downward, as has the share who say religion is very important in their lives. I'm going to pause there. We'll continue reading the study. But this goes to what I was saying just a moment ago. What you say is far less important than what you do. 
And as we see these shifts, those who would identify as religious or irreligious, and we see the ratios shift and uh, the percentages change, a lot of that is really a reflection of people being more honest about what they actually believe. <laughs> uh, it's interesting that people would say they are religious and yet they don't value prayer. They don't value religion. It's not that important in their lives, but they are Christians. So we do have to be very careful about hearing these terms and phrases thrown around. Uh, perhaps some of this is just people being more honest. I'll continue reading from Pew. Currently about three in 10 U.S. adults, 29% are religious nuns. Uh, N-O-N-E-S, nuns, people who describe themselves as atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular when asked about their religious identity. Self-identified Christians of all varieties, including Protestants, Catholics, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and Orthodox Christians. I'll pause again. <laughs> That's a very broad topic, and not all of us would agree that everyone in that category uh, are indeed Christians, but that's important to understand for the study. He goes on, make up 63% of the adult population. So those Christians make up 63%. Christians now outnumber religious nuns by a ratio of a little more than two to one. In 2007, when the center began asking its current question about religious identity, Christians outnumbered nuns by almost five to one, 78% versus 16%. The recent declines within Christianity are concentrated among Protestants, Today, 40% of U.S. adults are Protestants, a group that is broadly defined to include non-denominational Christians and people who describe themselves as just Christian, along with Baptists, Methodists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, and members of many other denominational families. The Protestant share of the population is down 4 percentage points over the last 5 years and has dropped 10 points in 10 years. By comparison, the Catholic share of the population which had ticked downward between 2007 and 2014, has held relatively steady in recent years. As of 2021, 21% of U.S. adults described themselves as Catholic, identical to the Catholic share of the population in 2014. Within Protestantism, evangelicals continue to outnumber those who are not evangelical. Currently, 60% of Protestants say yes when asked whether they think of themselves as born-again or evangelical Christian while 40% say no or decline to answer the question. This pattern exists among both white and black Protestants. Among white Protestants, 58% now say yes when asked whether they think of themselves as born again or evangelical Christians, compared with 42% who say no. Uh, among black Protestants, evangelicals outnumber non-evangelicals by 2 to 1, 66 versus 33%. This article goes on to explain the downward shift and the downward trend in so many areas. You break down any area related to religion, religious belief, religious practice, uh, the United States, every area, every single area is in decline from being religious, identifying as Christian to not so much. <laughs> A lot of people who aren't sure may call themselves agnostic, so not Christian, uh, but certainly not atheist, not having fully rejected the idea or the notion of God. But where we once stood as a nation, where we once held to these, what we call Judeo-Christian principles, these, these principles found in the Christian faith, found from Scripture, uh, these principles that we all generally agreed upon, uh, those no longer are guiding our public discussion. 
culture is changing, and one of the areas that culture is changing very, very quickly is in a belief in the absolute God, in the absolutes that govern our lives, in a Bible that is historically true and relevant for us today, the basic tenets of Christian faith that helped to found our nation and continue, have continued historically, to carry us forward, uh, to help us to understand what the family is and how the family should operate, what charity is, both locally and abroad, how we should function within a community and a society and with each other, how we should behave, what we should allow and what we should not allow. I think currently we can see the great shift in religious identification and belief, even in the discussions that we're having around the world and in our country regarding gender. (laughs) Where does an identity of gender come from? If we weren't created, then it doesn't matter. We can self-determine. We have these conversations and we wonder where has it come from? And yet we see the lines of increase in conversations about topics we once would have stayed away from, directly connecting to a decrease in a belief in the absolutes of religion and Christianity. I say all of that to get me to another article. From the stream, we find this article. The title is Increased Suicides Among Middle-Aged Americans. Potentially, that's an important word, linked to decreased religiosity, study finds. This is an article from January this month, uh, just a couple of days ago. Um, Fascinating. Let me begin just by reading it, and then we'll draw some conclusions. This is written by Kate Anderson, again on the stream. A recent working paper published by several university professors found a potential link between declining religiosity and suicide trends in the 90s. Now, remember, um, we hear these dates. All of these studies have to go back (laughs) several years in order to have the data necessary to draw conclusions. Uh, What would be done then with a study like this is that data would be extrapolated and we could predict how things will continue, all things being the same or getting worse or getting better. The study, uh, titled Opiates of the Masses, in quotes with a question mark, Deaths of Despair and the Decline of American Religion, focused on the uptick in suicides during the 90s and pointed out a possible correlation between the rising in deaths of despair and a marked decline in religiosity. The paper was published earlier this month and noted that the trend seemed to be most apparent in white, middle-aged males. Um, We're going to work through this together, but keep in mind that what this illustrates is what you believe has a real consequence on how you behave. The article continues. The religious decline in question involved measures called blue laws that regulated commerce at certain times of the week, often Sunday mornings, but were removed during the 80s and early 90s, according to the paper. We find that for middle-aged Americans, the repeal of blue laws had a 5 to 10 percentage point impact on weekly attendance of religious services and increased the rate of deaths of despair by two deaths per 100,000 people, the study stated. Applying these results to the decline in religion at the end of the century suggests that this decline could be responsible for a reasonably large share of the initial rise in deaths of despair. 
Professors Tyler Giles of Wellesley College, Daniel Hungerman of the University of Notre Dame, and Tamar Ustrom of The Ohio State University co-authored the paper. Much of the previous research on the increasing amount of suicides and substance abuse-related deaths in the U.S. looked at data from 1999 and beyond. But the professors decided to look back further and noticed religious attendance had also significantly dropped off during this period. <clears throat> Quote, starting in the late 1980s, many measures of religious adherence in the U.S. began a sharp downturn. This decline has been noted by researchers studying religion, but its proximity to the initial rise of deaths of despair has largely gone unnoticed, end quote, the researchers noted. Quote, second, religiosity is well known to be strongly correlated with health outcomes. Third, this religious decline was extremely large and widespread, so that it may have had quantifiable effects on mortality rates, end quote. Prior researchers have pointed to the opioid crisis as the main reason behind the startling climb in suicide numbers, according to a 2015 study by Princeton University researchers Ann Case and Angus Deaton. While Case and Deaton concurred with Giles, Hungerman and Ustrom that white Americans aged 45 to 54 were the ones most affected by the suicide epidemic of the 90s, their research attributed the increase on the erroneous prescription of drugs like oxytocin, and declines in mental health. The epidemic of pain, which the opioids were des designed to treat, is real enough. Although the data here cannot establish whether the increase in opioid use or the increase in pain came first. The 2015 study explained, pain is also a risk factor for suicide. Increased alcohol abuse and suicides are likely symptoms of the same underlying epidemic and have increased alongside it, both temporally and spatially. Giles, Hungerman, and Ustrom, however, noted that the previous research, as well as many others, admitted that their findings were incomplete, according to the study. They argued that the research often focuses on 1996 and beyond, subsequently ignoring crucial data from the earlier 1990s and even the 1980s. Our descriptive work focusing on a break from trend in the early 90s makes this clear. OxyContin was first introduced as a prescription drug in 1996, yet already by that year, deaths of despair for middle-aged white Americans were well above trend. With over 15% more deaths than one would forecast using data from the 1980s, the paper stated, the large negative outcomes that we observed for the United States in the 1990s highlight that religiosity can play an important role in well-being in a highly developed society even absent large-scale wars and natural disasters. The researchers pointed out that data had shown states with large declines in religiosity also saw a sharp increase in suicides and substance abuse-related deaths, while states that maintained or increased religious adherence did not see such spikes in self-harm, according to the study. In conclusion, the paper emphasized the need for more research regarding the cultural and religious influence on the mental and physical health of Americans. Using shocks based on the repeal of blue laws, we then demonstrate that negative shocks to religious practice had relatively large impacts on deaths from poisoning, suicides, and liver cirrhosis for middle-aged Americans in the late 20th century, the researchers said. These results underscore the importance of cultural institutions such as religious establishments in promoting well-being. Um, man, what a great article. This was on the stream. 
Uh, originally, it was found on the Daily Caller News Foundation, uh, written by Kate Anderson. Great article. And I mean, there's so much here. It's relatively short, but connected to what we understand about the religious decline in the United States, I think we can draw some real conclusions. It, it is interesting to me as I read this article and look at the data that was used that the initial conclusion had nothing to do with the decline in, again, what is called here religiosity or religious belief or faith in God or Christianity uh, or even laws that governed behavior on Sundays and at other times that religious practice would happen, uh, but that the initial conclusion was drugs had the biggest impact on suicide deaths. Now, certainly, and we see this even now, they're looking at um, data from the 90s. We see this now, um, the opioid epidemic we talk about often, uh, the number one killer of a large demographic of folks who uh, die in the United States every year. Uh, this is terrible, of course. But if we look to the wrong place and try to fix the wrong symptom, <laughs> we're never going to address the actual issue. We have to think clearly and understand clearly if we're going to make good decisions, particularly even for legislatures and others who are uh, making decisions and writing laws and voting on laws that would govern some of our behavior and access to substances. Was it, is it, the drugs that are causing the lack of religious belief and religious practice that are leading then to suicide deaths? Or is it the decline in religious belief, the increase in those who would identify as having no religious preference, the rejection of an absolute God and an absolute Bible that applies to our lives absolutely, the increased belief or acceptance of a philosophy, a theory that says we came from nothing, <laughs> we are nothing, we're going to nothing, is it that that created then the desire among people or the response among people who have rejected everything else, rejected anything outside of themselves or their situation that caused them to look to substance to mask or deaden the pain that they feel, the hopelessness that is connected to really nothing that then leads to the actions of um, in many cases, self-harm, suicide, overdoses, drug deaths, an increase in substance abuse, which is driving the other, is the question. I think this article makes uh, a strong case that it is the lack of religiosity, the lack of faith, the lack of uh, belief in God or Christian practice that leads to seeking answers outside of faith. And those answers so often bring people to uh, an even greater level of despair and hopelessness. Uh, I talk about this today, and again, this is very important to me personally, uh, certainly as a Christian, someone who believes that we have a responsibility to share truth with others. Uh, this is very important because it illustrates that faith 
and religious practice, and I use it very, very broadly. I, I struggle to use it as broadly as I do. I believe that uh, religion and even faith can be very empty if it is not about having a relationship with God through Christ. But the data would support that even simply believing in God and believing that God exists and that God created and that God has a plan for my life, even if I don't understand who Jesus is or why it's important to have a relationship with him, just having an understanding that, that there is a God outside of my situation, a God that's bigger than me, bigger than my circumstance, bigger than what's happening in the world, that that gives hope. And that in religious practice is found hope and found direction and found peace and chaos. And that that then negates the need in many cases to, quote, self-medicate. This is important because as we continue to see a decline in faith and a decline in religious belief in the United States, we cannot watch that decline and accept what we are being told about religion, specifically that it is entirely personal and has no impact on the way that anyone lives. What I draw, the conclusion I draw from these two articles, both based on research, statistics data, is that if we as Christians don't do a better job of communicating to others why it is that they need to believe in God and practice faith and religion, if we allow this continued slide away from the absolutes of God and Scripture, if we relegate religious belief and religious practice to something so personal that it has no impact on anyone around me, on the way I behave, on the things I do and say and think, if we allow that to take place, we have to do so realizing, understanding that there will be deep, personal, family, cultural, societal implications. You cannot reject God and go on with your life as normal, <laughs> find hope and direction, joy in living. You cannot divorce the absolutes of a creator from your personal philosophy, ideology, and manner of life and not eventually run into the emptiness the abyss of having no created purpose. I do believe that there are people who practice religion in a manipula manipulative, um, overbearing, harmful, hurtful way. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. What I'm specifically speaking of is that as we decline culturally, and our understanding of God, we will increase culturally in actions and activities driven by hopelessness and despair. And to this, we must be warned <laughs> and do everything we can to prevent that slow, gradual decline. I'll conclude with this. As I think about this, I then have to step back and ask the question, well, what can I do about it? 
That's a good question to ask. Perhaps we can drive policy, elect officials who will make good policy. Maybe we can do that. But specifically what we can do, I think, at least for me, falls into two specific actions. One, I can be consistent in my practice of faith. My manner of life can reflect what I do believe about God and Jesus and the Bible. Because as I live a life that reflects what I truly believe about who God is and how he has created me and everything in the world and that he has created me with purpose and direction, that Christ died in my place to pay the price for my sin and in that I can have freedom. That I have a home not only on this earth, but eternally because of that spiritual freedom. When I live out my life in a way that reflects that belief, a hopeless world around me must take note. They don't have to accept it, but they have to see, they must see that there's something different. That's number one. I need to live consistent with what I believe. Number two, I need to teach my kids, to do the same. I don't have the statistic in front of me, but we know that something like 70% of young people who get to the age, having grown up in a Christian home, a home that puts a value on going to church, something like 70% of those kids, when they get to the age where they can make their own decisions, will walk away from church. Now, many will come back later on in their lives, but in their late teens and early 20s, many, many young people who grow up in Christian homes will walk away from the faith. Why is that? A lot of reasons. One of the big reasons is because parents are inconsistent in their own faith walk and because they don't teach their children how to live. This, to me, the article from Pew Research is... Frightening, somewhat discouraging. Reading the article that I just read to you, Increased Suicides Among Middle-Aged Americans Linked to Decreased Religiosity, that frightens me. But it also stirs in me a desire to do something about it. <laughs> and what can I do? Live consistent. Teach consistent. Encourage those who are doing right. And encourage you to do the same. I hope that's helped you today. Again, that was not intended to be negative at all, but something we need to understand. Realize that your faith practice, it is personal. It's personal, um, but it's not personal in that it doesn't affect the way you live or the things you say or the things you do. It should impact everything because it's what you believe. Take heart, take hope, be encouraged, and let's do our best to encourage a generation that's coming up behind us and looking for answers. If you have the answers, because they're found in God's word to us, then share those and encourage others along the way. I do appreciate you listening. Again, if you have not yet subscribed to the podcast, please do that. Do it right now. You can subscribe. That would be fantastic. Share this uh, podcast out then with others. You share the content out with others. That'd be fantastic. Also, go over to YouTube. You can find our channel. Uh, go to YouTube. Then search for The Situation Report. You'll find us there, and uh, that would be fantastic as well. Subscribe, hit the notification bell, leave us a comment, share that content out with others, and uh, that would be 
Fantastic. Thank you so much for watching and or listening. I look forward to talking to you. Many of you know that my day job is working for an organization called the Mighty Oaks Foundation. I've had the opportunity to work with the Mighty Oaks Foundation for a little over 10 years now and very grateful for that opportunity. I served in the United States Marine Corps and left in 2003. When I came back from Iraq and got out of the Marine Corps, I transitioned and had some of the same struggles that many of our veterans today have. Uh, That transition time can be very, very difficult. I moved on with the help and support of my family and others in my close-knit community and really, in many ways, tried to walk away from my service. It was too hard, too difficult for me to look back, to remember, to stay connected, and so I chose not to. About 10 years after I walked away, I was reconnected with many of the men that I had served with in Iraq and even before that Iraq deployment and came to understand that so many of the men that I served with did not do well. I came home and I struggled, but I had a family around me and I had a community around me that helped me to get back on my feet and continue moving forward. So many of those that I had served with, however, did not have the same opportunity. They came home and didn't have that family around them, that community that could lift them up. And so they made some decisions, decisions that we talk about often in the veteran community. I was reminded about 10 years after my service that some of the men that I served with in Iraq came home and struggled and decided that it would be best for them to end their lives. Others who had not taken their lives, but who had struggled from one relationship to the next, from one job to another, and had never really gotten back on their feet. I learned after 10 years that walking away from my military service was not really an option. (laughs) You see, we think we can hang our uniform in the closet for the last time and walk away, but our obligation to those that we served with remains. It was at that time that I had the opportunity to get connected to the Mighty Oaks Foundation. It was just getting started. I met our founder, Chad Robichaux, and together we began to work on what is today a national nonprofit serving veterans, active duty service members, and more and more the first responders in our community. That's what we do. You see, Chad served in the Marine Corps as well, and both of us have an understanding, and so many of the folks, many, many folks that work with us now who served in the military and in the first responder community understand that we may get out, we may hang the uniform up, but we still have an obligation to care for those who have served or are serving. That's exactly what we do at the Mighty Oaks Foundation every single day. We run programs across the country for those who have served, veterans, or are serving, active duty service members, those who are serving in their community as first responders, police officers and firefighters, and others in that first responder community. We serve them by helping them to understand that there is life beyond their service, that their identity should be wrapped up in more than a uniform or a job that they've done or are doing, that there is a purpose, that there is a plan. In fact, that God, the creator, has something he intends for them. And that if they'll simply align their lives to the life that he has for them, so much of the trauma, so much of the difficulty, so much of their past, so many of those things that have a hold on them, they may not go away, but they won't maintain the hold and the control. Here's the message we try to convey and communicate. There is hope. And there is a community of people found within 
the Mighty Oaks Foundation that understand where you've been because we've been there. We don't have it all figured out. We're certainly not perfect, but we've taken some steps to move forward, and we want to take you with us. That's what we do. How do we do that? Again, by communicating the fact that there is hope, by connecting with others who've been there and know how to move forward, and by getting around you and supporting you as you begin to take those very important steps yourself. The Mighty Oaks Foundation is blessed to have supporters across the country that make it possible for us to do the work that we do at no cost to the veteran, the active duty service member, or the first responder. For you to attend our program, you simply need to set aside five days and come to one of our locations, one of our facilities. We'll do the rest. There will be no cost to you for the program, no cost for the transportation to get you to the program. We do all of the planning and all of the logistics. You simply need to get there. We want to remove every obstacle for you to get the help, the encouragement, the strengthening, <laughs> the hope, the renewal that you need. We're thankful for the opportunity to do that. Perhaps you are not a veteran or a service member. You're not in the first responder community, but you care about those who have served and are serving our communities. Well, you may fall into the other category then. Perhaps you're someone that can support what we do financially to make it possible for those folks to come along. Maybe your support is not financial support, but you know someone in your community, in your town, in your church, uh, in a club, or something else that you're a part of that could use this kind of support and encouragement. Plug them in. Let us help them. Let us get them on the road. No cost to them. We want to do the work, but we need you to get them to us. That was a lot of words. If you listen to the show, you know I say a lot of words sometimes. So let me point you to the one place where you can get all your questions answered. MightyOaksPrograms.org is our website. MightyOaksPrograms.org. There you will find more information about what we do as an organization. There's an application for those who would like to apply. Fill that out, application out. Our team will get back to you, set everything else up. If you would like to support the work of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, you'll find a place to do that there as well. And there is also a section for resources. So many of you know people who need help but may not start by coming to a program, attending a program, but they would read a book, they would watch a video, they would listen to a testimony. We have those resources there for you as well. So please come and join us at the Mighty Oaks Foundation's website, mightyoaksprograms.org. Our veterans, active duty members, and first responders need our support. Maybe you're in that category. You need our support. And that begins by going to the Mighty Oaks Programs website, mightyoaksprograms.org.